We're putting up new buildings, we're knocking down the old. We're working in the summer heat and in the winter cold. And the labor power we sell, me boys, for a hard and weekly pay. Produces mighty profits for the greedy MBA. And whether we were born here or born in Italy, in Greece, in Spain, or Ireland, in England, or Fiji, we all of us are workers united, we must stand until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our. Welcome to Creatures of the Industry, an ongoing series of oral history interviews with the people who made the building and construction industry in Melbourne and regional Victoria since the 1960s. These podcasts are sponsored by the Concrete Gang in cooperation with Community Radio 3CR. And break a couple of concrete pores to back our lug of claims. So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high. It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky. We've got a fighting history and we never will be cowed. Our builder's labour is a name to make a man feel proud. And welcome to Creatures in the Industry. And this morning we have a couple of guests who have been around this industry for a very long time. <coughs> the very old Martin Bingham and the quite young Paul Sullivan. That's it. And if you prefer, the young Paul Sullivan and the ancient Martin Bingham. But I've still got my hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got a bit of it. Mine went on strike. <laughs> We're here today talking about our industry and these two gentlemen have been part of it for a very long time and maybe the best way as usual to start is tell us how you came into the industry and when it was. Martin? March 1961. Uh, synthetic rubber, rubber uh, what would you call it, not a factory, um, plant like an oil refinery in Altona. Started with Chicago Bridge as a TA under the metal trades. Uh, and then I went across the road with Flua, Utah. And then There's a name to conjure with. Yeah, and then I moved up in the world and went into the city. And my first building in the city was the National Mutual in Collins Street, which is still standing today. That's the first building site I was on, which was, would have been 60, a bit after... Uh, yeah, and then I went to King Street Bridge after it collapsed. Not the Westgate Bridge, King Street Bridge. Worked there as a scaffolder. Ooh, moved on from there, different places, a lot of jobs in the city. Mm-hmm. Westgate Bridge, General Motors, Ford Factory. Yeah. So you did a lot around different sectors of the industry. And uh, I would have said that uh, probably 50-50 in terms of the jobs you sort of worked on between... Metals and uh, building, or do you reckon more building uh, than metals? More in the, yeah, more in the building, yeah. yeah. And Paul, what about you? Where, did, where and when did you start? I started in um, May 66 on St Kilda Road, 608 St Kilda Road. Who was that builder? It was City Industrial. It was a plumbing company. Oh, there you go. I was there about three months and I left and went round Australia to Darwin. I worked in Darwin for two years in construction. And I came home, or back to Melbourne, and started down in Western Port Bay at Hastings with a company called Cresco's. Norm Wallace and Jimmy O'Neill were my first organisers. Not a bad combination? Not a bad combination. That's right. Yeah. Now, that would have been for BP? It was Johnson Way Goods. Yeah, but in terms of uh, the client, was, it, was that the BP? No, it was called, called Cresco. Rescue Constructions. Uh, yeah, but who was the refinery? It was a, a fertilising plant. It was, oh, the fertiliser, right. Yeah, okay. it was next to, next to the Esso refinery. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. there you go. Now, in terms of the industry when you started, both of you, what's your memories of it? Shit. <laughs> it was hard. There was no safety regulations. The money was crap. I think I was getting a dollar ninety-five. Hastings, and we ended up getting a, a two-cent pay increase in the 60, an hour. Um, 
the boss was an arsehole and he was ripping his workers off, even though it was shit money. And then uh, it was, um, yeah, we had a few fights, uh, a few arguments over the period of time. Martin Carini was uh, one of the organisers in the 60s, 60s and 70s. It's yeah, early 60s. Particularly uh, down on the peninsula. Yeah, yeah. and him and I got on quite well together because no one else in the job could understand it. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, I had to repeat what he was saying, but when he said things like, would anyone like $50? And they'd all put their hand up. He said, you fucking understood that, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was uh, very good at his job. Yeah. Yes, Martin yeah. was a great organiser. Yeah. Lousy car driver, but yeah. uh, <laughs> for those who yeah. remember some of Martin's efforts behind the wheel... But really, uh, in terms of the work, oh, yeah, you go to work to make money, but you would like to be uh, yeah. in control of how you work and the circumstances under which you work, and how did you find that? I would have thought shit is probably a good description, but yeah, it was. maybe a yeah. bit more detail about the sort of things that people were getting asked to do in those days well, you were compared to today. Well, there was no sort of control over anything, like even uh, over cut trenches and all that. A lot of them caved in in the 60s because there was no regulation at that time. There was regulations in the mining industry, but it didn't roll over to the building industry. So there was a lot of uh, stupid accidents, uh, especially in in the civil work, and there was a lot of accidents in the city. Every job I was on in the city in the past, at least one guy died in that period of building. Some, one job in Collins Street and Elizabeth Street, five guys died. The Market Street job, two guys, two guys died. Fell off the fucking building, right? Because the safety regulations were, were just non-existence. People were falling down. A friend of mine who I was working with at the time, uh, we were doing the lift shafts, decking it over. With this, you know, and he was only a little guy and we were handling 14-foot planks. And he said, you go up the top pull them up because they're too heavy for me, right? Well, as I walked away, he went to the back of the, the lift shaft, picked up a plank, stood it up, stepped back and went through the hole, 16 floors down into the basement. And a guy ran after me and said, Bingham, you mean just fell down to the fucking lift shaft? I said, what? Bullshit. So I walked back and there's a gap this big. So, because there's no, there was no system to doing it, you know what I mean? No one sort of... It's very, very dangerous doing those shafts. I hated them from there on. One of my pet hates as an organiser was seeing an open lift shaft. And the first job was a Grollo's job, the BP building on the corner of Spring Street. All the lift shafts were open and I made them put cages in. And that was the first time the cages started. I made them block them off because the idiots on the stepladders, as you know, don't take any notice of safety. And they always tip over to the side, whatever. They've fallen over the side of the building. They've fallen down lift shafts, uh, air conditioning shafts, all that stuff. It, just, it was just no, no, one, no one knew really what to do. They just thought they were safe because they're standing on ladders and, you know, standing on the floor and they're not going to fall down a fucking big hole. You know, it's just, it was just crazy. So many deaths, it was bad. What about your experience, Paul? Well, it was, uh, the safety was left to the men on site. In about 68, and uh, if there was anything wrong, the men looked after the men. You sort of stop the job, get something going, and if it, if it calls for a strike, you take a strike, and then you'd inform the union you've had a strike, and they'd send someone down. And when they did send someone down, war was done, but it was also, they, if they knew the job was going then, they, they, they played more interest in it and kept it going and kept returning. But that's how you, you had to do things. You couldn't just sit back and let the company tell you what to do. You had to stand up to them and tell them what had to be done. Did that, in your mind, actually get people committed to what was happening on the job? Exactly. Because they were the only ones that could control it. That's right. Yeah, once, you, once you brought it to their notice, what was, what was going to be done, what had to be done, if it wasn't done, then they'd have problems. And the blokes were prepared to support it. A lot were, yeah. Some weren't, a lot weren't, but the majority, you might get two or three majority <laughs> to, to support you. Not that you were counting. <coughs> no, no, no. Oh, no. <laughs> well, 
Well, let's just say you miscounted the vote. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. In the, in the old days, we used to put up uh, a day's pay for anyone that got killed on the job. Yeah. Right? And we had a problem in uh, Market Street with a Dutchman telling me, you know, the guy died, we telling him money for his life, day's pay. He offered him 50 cents. <laughs> that was, he wasn't going to give a day's pay, 50 cents. So we went home for the day until he got the arse. Now, that, in these uh, <laughs> current times, would be a crime against humanity on a scale which uh, uh, would probably bring about a uh, several million dollar fine. Well, and jail. <laughs> it was just so bad. Like, we, were, we, never, we, we didn't earn a lot of money, did we? It was just, um, I think when I got married, I was earning $62 a week. Yeah, I had to pay for train fares and rent and all that sort of shit. So we didn't really have much, but... We enjoyed ourselves. We always had a, yeah, a bit of a laugh and a bit of, uh, you know, shit staring on the building side. Wanted to kill a few, few and a, cup, a couple of travellers on the uh, train home to Frankston. It's, it's <laughs> on the six o'clock special, yeah. yeah. No, I lived in Mooney Ponds at the start with, then I went to Frankston. Yeah, there was, yeah, yeah, it was good, yeah. So but anyway, we got on, yeah. In terms of the size of the industry in those days. Mm. A lot of people look around the city and they see how many jobs there are, but compared to then, the industry wasn't all that big. If, no, but, but what, you, what you could do is tell the boss to stick your job up his ass and walk across the road and get another job without a problem. You can't do that these days. Well, there's too much ID for a start. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, you again? No. But I, I was very... I controlled myself couple of times but I did belt two bosses because they were and they both got the ass because um, they were in the they were in the wrong so <laughs> fighting on the job <laughs> no, that rule wasn't in then especially if you're hitting a boss no defence <laughs> at the same time and this is uh, one of the reasons why we call this particular podcast creatures of the industry with uh, people were good people bad people they didn't blow in and out of the industry. They tended to stay, including bosses and foremen. And would I be right in saying, just like today, there are as many bosses and foremen who you can live with, yeah. you don't have to like them, you can live with them, as there were in those days. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Yeah, well, they were in danger as well because it's just, like a lot of stuff fell off buildings as well, like scaffold tubes and acro props and uh, I remember one falling off and one of the jobs in the city, the acro prop, they undone it and hit it with a hammer and it went over the side of the building, went through the tray of a truck. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so there was no, could have been a foreman. <laughs> there was one foreman who unfortunately walked underneath, walked out from underneath when a bloke that was tipping in a wheelbarrow full of broken bricks, mm. but he waited there for about 10 minutes for the boss to appear. <laughs> well... That does, of course, yeah. cause a whole lot of bloody <laughs> issues. I don't and it people doesn't do. happen these days. No, thankfully. But things can happen quite simply. And these days there is edge protection. There is mm. uh, a series of frames, screens that protect things going over the side. I can remember being on top of a building uh, probably 1980s I asked a uh, labourer to help me putting up this small scaffold. Would he hold on to a three-metre tube? And he did. And then I picked up another tube and he took it out of my hands and I realised he was no longer holding the three-metre standard. And that was going straight over the edge. Yeah. Hit the, uh, the handrail and it was just going to spin over. Yeah. I grabbed it, but if that had gone down, that was the middle of Collins Street. And I, I think that is the sort of incidents that occurred so regularly yeah. that maybe a few people were blasé about it, particularly well, government, particularly the DLI yeah. as it was in those days and so on. It's a thing that you, you had to fix yourself on site. There was no one else like the, the DLI and that sort of stuff. That was something that was starting, yeah. building up, but <laughs> hadn't, hadn't come into full effect. It was, just, it was left to the site. So when do you reckon there was that sort of change in attitude to health and safety? I think it changed a lot with uh, when the Westgate Bridge came down. 
a lot of people realised what was going on. They didn't, they, they didn't know what had happened, but they could see that there were things happening there <coughs> that was happening in the industry. Not just and one massive accident has happened. That's, and things start to improve then. Not just not willingly, you still have to fight for things and even go on strike to get it done. Well, but you, you did. You're still fighting, you're still fighting today for um, safety regulations. So it's, you know, I, I had banned stepladders quite a few times on, you know, for plumbers and sparkies from using them. They get uh, those little chariot things because they just abuse them all the time. Mm. They, they're still doing it today. You try and tell them not to stand on the top of a stepladder, they think you're an idiot, you know. I'm not, I'm all right, I'm up here, you know. Yeah, okay. It's all safety will land on your head. Well, it's with all without a hard hat on. Six foot is the worst height to fall from because you're going to land on the back of your head or your face, right? If you fall 12 foot, you're going to land on your feet if you do a full somersault. So people don't understand, you know, falling from six foot off a stepladder, they're going to die. They can die with that problem, which has happened many times in the government. Now, what Paul said about the Westgate Bridge is actually reflecting conversations already uh, had on this podcast. A whole lot of people who were involved in the first stage of the Westgate before the collapse, some of the horrific stories that they tell Mm. is similar to the issues that you're raising, but on a much bigger scale. The size of the operation was incredibly significant. Now, both of you worked on the Westgate. Yeah. Both after the collapse. Yeah. Did that seem a lot safer than what you'd heard about before and what you'd experienced elsewhere? Was that the start of a mindset among the workforce? that was going to have a ripple effect right across the industry, as you suggest? Or did it take a while for the second stage, after the collapse, to actually get itself sorted out so it was actually getting done properly? I think it took a while to get it sorted out. But once they started rolling, it kept, it, they kept it there. They didn't lose it on the Westgate Bridge a second time. But there were still some people had to be reminded of what to do and how to do it, and even that's for the from the pro- project managers down, you know, even to the to the labourers on site, and uh, you still have to remind them what has happened, and what shouldn't happen again, how to work safely and look after each other. And if if someone did have an accident on site, they were off work, they were looked after by the men on site. You go around and check on them, do things for them, and look after them in some way. But there was there was still a still an element. A lot of uh, very, very unsafe practices. Yeah. Especially building drop scaffolds, uh, hanging scaffolds off the steel beams, right? You had to make a little H-frame, put it over the, say, nine-inch uh, nine beam going across, right? Yeah. And then you'd sure. put a... Uh, just before you drop the... Down, you'd put a couple of scaffold tubes on the bottom, lower that over... Slide down the fucking thing, stand on the scaffold clip, bend over 200 feet above the arrow, and you're just standing on a scaffold clip, and then you put the uh, little puddle it in through the other side and put a plank up. Do you remember that? Yeah. How we used to do that? Yeah. That was really dumb. But we, <laughs> we did it, because <laughs> there was no other way to do it at that time. And there was a few pretty close accidents it just, um, it just got away with pulling down the uh, Favco, no, the Hammerhead. The Hammerhead? On the bridge. Yeah. Stiff leg. Stiff leg. So pulling down, it kind of weights away out the middle, right? And I was standing on the, on the top of the cabin with the foreman, Jimmy McAlpine, right? And <laughs> One and only. <laughs> and, uh, for those who have and, worked for him. And while they're undoing this, it's the wedges that are holding the... the Thing. I said, Jimmy, what's going to hold? Because I've never worked on one before. I said, what's going to hold that kind of weight from coming down here and it was crashing in? You know, how are you going to stop it? He said, oh, that cable going up there and back over there and it comes back down there and it's connected to the. And as he's talking, I said, well, well, here it comes because they hadn't connected it. So, and the, the cranes tied into the bridge. You remember the day they all, they, like, the, this kind of weight must have been, what, 40 tonne? Yeah. 
came crashing down into the back of the cabin. And he went to put his foot on the rail to try to stop it. <laughs> and I said, Jimmy, that, that, get your foot off there. That's going to trip your foot off, right? So, and it slammed into the cabin. The bridge shook, fucking up and down, and walked back and forward. The crane was fucking wobbling. And the blokes in that were inside the bridge, they were like rats out of a cup of sunken, <laughs> sunken ship, fighting each other to get into the lift because they thought the bridge was coming down. And that was scary. And a lot of blokes, like uh, Bill, Billy uh, Copeland, he just didn't come back. He said, that fucked up, that frightened the shit out of me. And another time with the counterweights, when we were lowering it, things down, it caught on, on the edge. And it probably only dropped released about an, half an inch, right? But I was standing on the end of the bridge overlooking the arrow, facing it, talking to the guys on the east side, right? And it went, biggest bang you ever heard, and the bridge went down three foot and then up three foot and down three foot. And the guy that was next to me, I went round, turned around to talk to him, he's halfway up the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm watching the guys on the other side of the bridge, he were going up and down. It's not going to fall over, you know, it's still here, and they were fighting for the lifts again, and a lot of them quit, just didn't come back. Yeah. So there was a lot of pretty close ones. Well, that's... Scary ones. <laughs> a really interesting aspect to the story of the Westgate for me and for a lot of people listening, because most of the discussion, most of the memories have been about the bridge and the collapse. Yeah. What led up to it, what happened on the day and what the consequences were for people's lives. But this second stage of the bridge is just as horrific but without the same consequences. But yet 35 people died when the bridge collapsed but there was still another fatality afterwards, wasn't there? Joe Owens. Joe Owens, yes. And uh, there could have been a hell of a lot more by the sounds of this. Yeah, well, he... um the three of them fell off. Um, Johnny Reed. Johnny Reed came down, yeah. Uh, Stan and Freeze. Uh, Jimmy McCrudden. No. Uh, yeah. 72. Now, one fell onto the deck of the, of the bridge. One, Johnny Reed fell onto the uh, scaffold, scaffold platform, about 11 foot down, broke his arm and his leg, and Joe missed it and fell all the way down. Um, Stan Humphries came Stan, down on the down the ladder, slid, slid down the ladder with two broken legs. Yeah, he had a broken. Yeah, he broke. He landed on the scaffold as well, didn't he? He came down off the scaffold. Yeah, down the ladder with uh, with his arms. Now, without trying to make judgments about people, and from the benefit of with the benefit of hindsight, those sort of incidents sound to me largely human error. Is that because the mindset of people was still not orientated towards safety? Yes. Well, that or was it just a case of yes, we know what we're supposed to do, but under pressure, we do something else. Yeah. yeah. Those guys were standing on the frame of the of the crane when the crane driver turned the gibberain. He turned into the sun, mm. but he had his hook too low. Yeah, and he just swept him off the bridge, and he was in a cop shop for forty-eight hours trying to, you know, cause an accident. Or he did do it on purpose. <coughs> it was an accident. He came back on the job, but uh, it was um, just one of those things, not thinking. Uh, well, I guess there is always going to be drop kicks in the industry. Oh, people. But just there don't is think. also, unfortunately, with the human species, an inability to concentrate a hundred percent of the time. Yeah. It only needs one percent, and next minute Joe Owens goes over the side. Yeah. Yeah. Now, moving on from that period in your working lives, as you got off the bridge and you went back into general industry or general construction industry, do you think you were seeing a change of attitude, even with the regulator, or was it still a fight? But it was maybe, maybe. A fight that was a bit easier to win because there was evidence. Yeah. You, your attitude had changed, but it made you more con- persistent. If yes. you've th- seen something wrong, you didn't forget it, and you you made you, you remained stronger. 
as you went on site. And you could see the guys still didn't know what to do or what happened in the, in the industry. And uh, you had to sort of, if there's no union follow-up there, you had to become the union on site. Mm-hmm. The shop stewards were the elected on site mm-hmm. and they were the union on site. And unless you uh, re- really called for a union to come to the site, you, they didn't come because they weren't needed in some some stages. But there was always the union on site with teaching the men what to do because the men didn't know, a lot of them. In those days, I would suggest that part of the problem was the turnover. The turnover of people coming in and out of the industry was pretty high. It still is a lot higher than than we probably recognise. Creatures of the industry, the people who stay, because basically they love the industry and they don't mind making a quid even if they have to do it hard, but that is probably only about 50% of the industry. If you're really being hard-nosed about it, there are always people, there's probably less people now who stay for their lives than there used to be, but... Would I be right in saying the turnover was particularly high at that, to- at that time? Yeah. Melbourne was expanding and so on. Yeah. yeah but it, it had its moments of greatness and then all of a sudden there's no work. So the guys had to go and find other jobs. Yeah. In 87, there was 147 cranes in the city. By the end of 89, there was two. Mm. Yeah. So um, it just disappeared, didn't yeah. it, really? It, yeah. Um, but I think... And that's not the first time. Yeah, I think the union got stronger from the early 50s uh, to what it is today, right? Um, with the help of the workers on site uh, who honestly believed in, if I go on strike, my conditions are going to improve, my wages are going to improve, we've got to support the union, all that sort of stuff. In those days, you didn't, you didn't really have to convince guys to go on strike, you just, um, just tell them, it's just, you know, up the shit, we have to get it fixed, and the only way to do it is we walk off the job. And that was it. See you later. There you go. Without a problem. In fact, that's how the 24 started. It was, yeah. it, was a, it was a quick, simple solution to a problem. Yes. No sheds, no toilets. 24 okay. hours. 24 hours, and we're going to demand payment. Yeah. Nick Moore was the one that demanded payment for the first time. The safety. Yeah. Is that what they put him on the disputes <laughs> panel? <laughs> it was up in uh, oh, Carlton Way somewhere. It's, the job was really stuffed, right? Mm. And I was with him and Chris Phillips, Nick Moore, and I think Pat McSherry from the Plumbers. And so we'd stopped the job on safety, and someone said, Oh, we've got to stay and fix it. No, 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 no. And Nick goes, Half of us can stay. And half of you can stay and do the safety, and the other half can sit in the sheds. You'll get double time, and they'll get single time. And everyone went, "What?" <laughs> he went in the boss and said, "He's done. They're on double time. They're on single time, and that's it." And it started. That's where it started. And which builders helped set this precedent? Which builder? Yeah. Uh, oh shit! No, you're going back too far, right? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah. all these actions were ad hoc. They were solutions to a problem. Yes. The problems today are not much different in nature from what they were then, but now we have regulation, we have the Occupational Health and Safety Act, we have elected health and safety reps as well as delegates. But the issue uh, for most people, I would have thought, was getting a quick and workable solution to a problem. But we don't seem to have that now, do we? No. We have nothing but court cases and bullshit. Mm. Well, yeah, but we had, we had hard times on some jobs, even as organisers. Um, I've had shotguns stuck in my stomach after he laid <laughs> two shells into it, uh, told me to get off his job and hand it on. Um, 14 organisers turned up on the job and we blacked that, obviously. Uh, I've had bricks thrown at me, guys taking a swing with their shovels, surrounded by half a dozen lunatics who wanted to kill you. Right? Um, 
So it wasn't easy in the end. Oh, they get you know, What was that? Eighties. Eighties. Yeah, it wasn't. There was a lot of wankers out there, especially outside in the suburbs. Uh, they just. There's still an element and, of people know, there. They just, I don't know, they're just in their head that nothing's going to happen to me. I'm, you know, I'm, 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 you know, I'm going to live forever. Sort of, yeah. It's just crazy trying to convince them that the job is unsafe. I pulled a scaffold down in Dandenong. It was loaded and loaded with bloody bricks. There was so much weight on it. It was ridiculous. So I grabbed the corner of it and pulled it and the whole thing fell over. Right. So if they had been workers on it, they'd have... Died because so mm. it was just loaded with scaffold, and that group of scaffolders came down to the Seaford Hotel that night looking for me. Right? But there was only half a dozen of them. I was drinking about twenty odd guys, so they didn't stay long, <laughs> and they didn't go work crook about the scaffold anymore. Was this the uh, Riviera or the uh, <laughs> Sundowner? The gun donor. <laughs> the gun donor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they didn't come back. <laughs> Well, we have sort of moved on a little bit because now we're talking about your experience, Martin, as a as an organizer. Mm. When did you become an organizer? That was that was Paddy Donnelly's fault. Um. <laughs> oh, well, there's a few things that Paddy Donnelly can answer for, but anyway, he's no longer with us. Unfortunately. I was working at General Motors engine plant right, with your your uh, friend um, Jimmy McAlpine. Um, the one and only. I was working for him. The, and Laurie Phelan from the Metal Workers and myself were sort of the first two full-time elected safety reps on a building site, right? Which later, because that was bad, right? They just didn't give a shit. Especially the plumbers there. Anyway, um, they, they improved. Um, halfway through that job, Mick Young came down and said, Norm Gallagher wants to see you in the union office. And I thought... Hello, what have I done? I know I was a big supporter of Gallagher's, Gallagher's in those days. I got into a few arguments in pubs and, and parties and whatever, but yeah, I went in and he said, oh, we need, um, we need you to come in and work for us for six weeks. Uh, during this. Oh, he, tr- he tried that line on you yeah. too, did he? Oh, he, right. <laughs> yeah, he stooged me into it, yeah. Like Seth has done a couple of times. Um, yeah, so, Come so. on, followed that up with the same routine, but never mind. <laughs> Yeah, so um, I said, oh, what, what about my job? He said, oh, you can have your job back when you, you know, after six weeks, six weeks to a day to three and a half years, right? But and I was always a supporter of him until the last minute when I threw my keys at him. I won't go into that on air. Right. So you became an organiser, looking after what sort of part of Melbourne? Oh, in wherever he sent you. Well, by area, it started the other side of the Yarra. I went right down the peninsula, crossed over to the Phillip Island, back up through Dandenong, up through Turak, say the Yarra, uh, and then back to the river. So that all that was the area I had to cover. So that's Martin Greeny's old area, it, it because was. he was down the valley there yeah. by that stage, yeah. yeah. Where he got stabbed a couple of times. <laughs> Some bloke stabbed him with a a trowel or something. <laughs> there's, yeah, there was, there's a few stories about Martin. <laughs> yeah. And so in those days, what would have been the main areas of activity in terms of construction or building and construction? Dandenong? Oh. There wouldn't have been too much in West Gippsland, would there? Oh, there was a few. There was, um, well, you didn't go there like every day, every week. You'd mm. go probably once a month to do mm. Because I had 22 jobs in St Kilda Road. That took me a week to sort of yeah. go up and down St Kilda Road. And there was a couple of very bad shop stewards down there who used to wait out the front of the job when they were doing something they shouldn't be doing and watch my car coming and they'd run in and tell the boss, oh, big was coming. And they'd, they'd stop doing what they're doing. And I was only told that by the workers later on, not at that particular time, you know. So they did... Yeah, a lot of shop students in those days weren't the best. Um, there were more company, like for uh, construction engineering, what a bunch of... <laughs> Put it bluntly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um, it's just uh, John Holland's... 
the shop stewards were just, um, yeah, they were just, oh, they were just there to get him. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we had some good shop stewards. Of course. <laughs> well, I had a lot of good shop stewards in St Kilda Road, but a lot of bad ones. And this is always going to be an issue. Yeah. yeah. First, first person on the job uh, that the boss likes can end up the shop steward. Yeah. yeah. Whether that person uh, disappoints the uh, boss later on is another matter, but anyway. In terms of organising, you've given us a couple of little uh, quick picks of uh, what it was like, t- tipping a scaffold over and things like that, and problems that you have but in terms of the ability of an organiser to go on a job and deal with an issue decent boss, bastard boss what was it like for you? Getting on a job was easy Um, Yeah, um, I never had a problem getting on the job uh, or calling a meeting with the the, you know, the labourers we did have that. We had that sort of right of entry card, which um, signed by the secretary of the union. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is good. But, yeah. Um, no. I but in terms of uh, once you're on the job, maybe yeah, you've had a meeting. How did you go dealing with issues? How many could you solve on the job as the problem arose? How many ended up in the commission? How many went to the disputes? What yeah. What was the sort of why most issues were dealt with and when did it become a problem and went somewhere else? I don't think, I can't remember. The only one I had a major problem is that we went to the dispute, disputes board when it first started with Alan, Alan, Bosti, Alan Bosti. Um, Ex-arbitration uh, yeah, commissioner, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, but not a bad guy, actually. Yeah. And I stopped the job in uh, Turang, the fun factory. Remember the fun factory? In uh, Chapel Street. Yeah, yep. and um, took it the uh, sent the blokes home because there was big holes on the floor, no handrails, no all, all sorts of shit, right? And it was the first case that Vossi was hearing, right? As the disputes were, and I went in, showed him the photos, done everything right, and this asshole who used to be a boss, um, oh, I'm getting old, can't remember names. <laughs> anyway, he. He got up and lied his ass off, right? And and Vossi give him the right to send the men back to work, fix up all the safety, and bring them next time. Leave the men on the job, fix the safety. They're not getting paid. Uh, oh, thanks very much, Al. <laughs> that was that was my first one. First one. Yep. And I won everyone after that. Well, you learned a few tricks, didn't you? <laughs> Did you? <laughs> Even old dogs can learn new <laughs> tricks. Yes, but. In terms of today compared to then, it sounds like most of it was pretty straightforward. It was very personal, face-to-face, and uh, it might have been, let's just say, a little bit of verbal pushing and shoving, but basically the attitude was, let's just get on with it. Am I right in saying that? And a lot of bosses had that same attitude. Let's, you know, okay, let's get it fixed, we'll do this, we'll do that, and... uh, you get the odd one that's just an arrogant piece of shit, you know, uh, just wants to argue for the hell of it, you know. Mm. So he can go back to his boss and say, oh, I argued with him, but he, you know, uh, he stopped my job. And, you know, so blame you for being a dickhead. You know? yeah. So, But uh, it's, uh, I, as I said to um, Rob, the president, the other week, I'm very, very surprised at the difference of the operation. Like, you go back to the... BL's little pissy little building, uh, you know, we had nothing really. But uh, compared to the setup today and the way it's organised and the way it's run, is amazing. I was very very surprised that the setup and the, and the way. If we had had this in the fifties and sixties and seventies, like this sort of setup, we'd have killed them. Mm. But we just didn't have the resources. Mm. But no. With all the amalgamation, you've got more members, so you've got more money. But as Rob said, if it wasn't for the workers in the past, we wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't be have this set up if the workers hadn't have put up the good fight in the past, mm. which we did put up the good fight. Now, Paul, you're getting left out of this a little bit. Sorry. But 
In terms of your experience on site through the rest of the 70s after you finished on the Westgate and into the 80s, you're a delegate on jobs and so on. Yeah. How does your experience compare to Martin's in terms of dealing with bosses and just the sort of attitude and processes that you had to go th- or had to deal with at that time? Well, you, you had to deal with things as, as a shop steward to start off with. And... Um you had support from the men on site. Some wouldn't support you, but the majority would. Mm. And you had, to, you had to stand up to the boss and get things done. And that was from going from job to job. Um, mm. Eventually, I was in the city, and um, I got a call to come into the office for four weeks <laughs> to help someone. <laughs> and uh, after, after four <laughs> weeks, it, it got extended to another four weeks. <laughs> it ended up 16 years. Were you... Were you there 16 years? Yeah. I was doing, uh, I was on the counter. And then I ended up doing the EBAs mm. for a few years. And then things got more technical and legal where things couldn't be done by an organiser. It had to be done by a solicitor. Mm. It got very, uh, it, you know, this was through the ABCC and all that crap. Yep. It was just, where they, they were just being so legal. You had to be legal as well. So it was just, it was just a hard, a hard battle. Well, there's three suckers sitting here, all of who got asked to come into the office for a few weeks. And uh, anyway, in terms of your observation, because you were a crucial person, it probably didn't do your health any good being on the counter yeah. uh, because I've, I've done some time on the counter in the past and it is unbelievable. Mm. Get a member's wife ringing up and abusing you, and you go, well, why don't you get your husband, who's got the problem, to ring up? Yeah, yeah. And then gradually you find out what it's really all about. Yeah. He hasn't paid his union dues. There's an issue that she thinks she's been in control of in terms of the money, and suddenly, oh, this money's owed, and she can't pay it, so she's going to come on hot and strong. All these sorts of things happen on the counter. Yeah. But you are in a crucial position in terms of actually hearing from rank-and-file members on the phone, coming through the door, and you're also dealing with organisers and the sort of problems that have to be passed on to them. Do you think in that time that you spent on the counter there was a considerable change in how the organisers dealt with things. I yes. would have thought that there's almost periods where it's like the old days, then there's a middle period and then there's the more sophisticated period that we're probably in now, mm. where you've learned a few things where you don't necessarily need the lawyer. No. <laughs> but So how did you, what was your overview of organising, sitting on the counter and actually watching it all go past? Well, sometimes you, you get calls from... Members com- coming in who haven't paid the union fees. Mm. You've got to try and help them. You give them a seven-day provisional ticket. Mm. If they were, you found them genuine. Mm. Give a seven-day provisional ticket to work on site. They'd come back after seven days, then they'd pay the union fees. Mm. Majority would. Mm. There's always some who didn't do that. They want a free ride, yeah. Yeah, that's all it was. And then that's, that's how things changed. Yeah, but at one stage, doing EBAs with the employers... You have to get them into the, into a room. You get twelve of them in there, and you get the EBA out. Give them a page each. Say just sign here, and this is what you. This is how you do it. Mm. And most of them did it, yeah. and they accepted it, and they were glad to have an EBA. Mm. So the, the conditions were there, the rates were there, and they were all on the same level. Yep, and that's how it worked. And if it's not complex, and it's equal, so they're competing on a level playing field, they don't give a stuff. Ah, that's right. They just want to get on with business. That's right. And the members equally vote in support of the uh, agreement because they just want to get on with business. They're yeah. just selling their labour. Yeah. But as an organiser, do you think it has changed from the glory days of Mr Bingham here who walks on and pushes over a um, scaffold, quite rightly too, I might add, but... 
Where do you reckon that's ended up in terms of the organisers and the sort of pressures and stresses they're under? Well, it's, it's, you've gone so many th- through many stages there that uh, legally speaking, this it's go back to legal legal uh, levels that the uh, organisers are in now. They must be more professional and careful mm. because there's so many people watching them, like the ABCC, which which is a the scumbag bloody part of the uh, of the construction industry. They shouldn't be there. Mm. It's just uh, it's the workers that and the organisers that run the industry, not those people. They do nothing for the industry mm. whatsoever. You nearly stole my thunder then. <laughs> what I want to say before yeah. we go, we've got a little way to go yet. The to a message to all politicians, right, around Australia or wherever, the ones that vote for the SS task force in the building industry, the so-called building fucking wankers, right, mm. they are going to be held responsible for and should be held responsible for every major accident and every death that happens in the building site because they're voting for a bunch of wankers who know nothing about the building industry they're just employed there like fucking SS, fucking guards, to stuff up the building industry and the union. And we're not going to take it lying on our ass. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's a problem, of course. Is, uh, there is a legislation before the uh, parliament. and uh, There is a slight suggestion in what the uh, federal minister is saying about uh, the maturity of the... Uh, construction industry to deal with industrial relations and it just sounds to me like uh, just like back in 2007 when the uh, Howard legislation was getting replaced by the Fair Work Act. It didn't turn out to be too fair for most people and we continued to get around it by dealing directly with employers and uh, doing it on a multi-employer basis but the changes that were introduced by Gillard basically were the ABCC light, and not all that light. And then uh, as soon as Tony Abbott got back, it was uh, ABCC full strength. And um, unless this particular type of organisation is gotten rid of completely out of the industry and we have some better way of dealing with things, and never forget because we've all experienced the fact that the legal system is weighed in favour of employers. Definitely. Whether it's issues of contractual law and all the problems that come from that, whether it's contempt of court, all these things are in their hands. Unfortunately, when they do it, everyone knows about it. But when they give quiet evidence on the side to a body that won't give them up, uh, they get a bit more courageous. Hmm. But there is nature's delicate balance in the construction industry where I would have thought we can take strike action, take bans and limitations, and they can sue the arse office. Somewhere in there, most issues over the years have been sorted out. One point, a uh, regional manager of John Holland's, bless his cotton socks, said to me, worst thing we ever did was get rid of the BLs. One... Because we faced a civil war for 10 years. And two, we made the union in some ways a whole lot stronger. But we, we didn't get rid of the builders' labourers. No. The politicians got rid of the builders' yes. labourers. Unfortunately, Norm gave them, gave them a good excuse to deregister the union. So that was a, that was a shit of a day for the builders' labourers. Um when they got deregistered. But anyway, I've done my best. <laughs> Didn't work. Well, in <laughs> terms of... We've, we've now transitioned on to another topic. In terms of a union amalgamations, yeah. what do you think have been the consequences of all the amalgamations? Forget the amalgamations with the forestry and the mining, which is an absolute disaster, which is being unravelled at this time, if they can get it through the courts. But... Within the construction division, one concern that has been expressed by a number of people to me over the recent time is that a lot of the trades have lost their identity. They, there isn't the same commitment to the trade. Now, I would argue with that, but that's certainly a perception out there. Do you think that's been a real problem with the amalgamations? 
I haven't noticed. No, I haven't noticed that. But I think plumbers, electricians, the carpenters, all the people involved in the building of a, of a multi-storey building should it, it would be better if they were all in the same unit, mm. um, uh, amalgamated as one major unit. Forget about. I don't forget, forget about. It, but we, there's a lot of hassles probably in the off-site stuff. Uh, you know, little factories and stuff like that. We don't need that. We we need to uh, concentrate on guys going home after work, mm. not uh, worrying about a bloke in a factory that someone pinches sandwich out of a fridge or something. You know, and it's um, no, I don't. And no, I'd what, about, what about the preservation of one, trade skills? One construction union, and that's it. This the with the tradesmen. A lot of guys today coming in the industry have forgotten about unions. They don't really support the union. They don't have the union feeling in themselves about the person, the person working next to them. You look after them. You look after each other. But that's that's what seems to have gone to the side. Now, just my observation is the number of people in the industry who end up stewards and health and safety reps is largely labourers. Yeah. Which is partly a reflection of the labourer's crucial role in it in just about everything, uh, and two, the history of builders, labourers having a separate organisation in the past, and that generationally passing on. But painters and decorators have lost their trade identity. standing, trade identity. Mm-hmm. That seems to be one of the consequences, to my observation, of all the amalgamations is, is do you think that has been something that could have been avoided and can it be reinvigorated so that the union becomes more vigorous in its representation of all the trades? Yes, it should, it should be. And to emphasise the point with, the, with, the, with your trade, what it is you're doing and how you got things there, and don't let, don't let them forget what they got and who got it for them. Because it was done from you know, years ago and years ago. Seem to, the, the people today seem to forget about it. They don't really have the history of what's happened. A lot of people I've spoke to and argued with in the pub, which is not like me arguing in a pub. Um, <laughs> which, <laughs> which pub in Melbourne didn't you argue in? Yeah. So isn't, uh, they've been demolished. I can't, yeah, I can't remember. Um, it's a, the attitude of anyone under 40 haven't really been on the decent strike right, mm. in the building industry. And the attitude of most of them is, oh, my boss is a good bloke. He, yeah. he gives me uh, overalls and boots and supplies me some tools, pays for my superannuation, does all this, you know. I can on and on and on they go. And you say, well, why, why does he do that? Oh, he's a good bloke. <laughs> You're a dickhead. <laughs> you know, wake up for fuck's sake. Anyway, yeah, grab that. <laughs> I think uh, the editor's going to be very busy, but never mind. Now, <laughs> uh, moving on, we know Paul's story in terms of right up to retirement. You worked for the union as a desk organiser, and the fact that you came out at the end in one piece. A bit tattered around the edges probably, but came out in one piece and sitting here smiling today is a credit because it would have been many times a horrific experience uh, dealing with like things when the wall across the road from the union office literally collapsed in front of your eyes. Yeah. That sort of thing. But Martin, where did you go? Uh... Where did I go to start with? <laughs> you stopped and that was it? Um, <laughs> after I had a disagreement with Norm, after I had a disagreement with Norm, I went out and bought myself a an old truck and a second-hand bobcat. I was doing okay until they found out where I was working and then they come and throw me off the job. That was okay. I sold that. Uh, went to work for Bob O'Brien's safety service, which was just a joke anyway. Um... And then uh, Brian Conwell offered me a job in uh, William Street, corner of William Street in Flinders Lane. He had a uh, the old SEC building. Yes, indeed. Monash House, wasn't it? 
No, no, the old NCC building. Yeah. Behind the uh, customs, the old yeah. customs building. Yeah. So the reason he offered me a job, he said it's a it's construction, a demolition job, and my shop stewards can't, can handle that. His words, they're fucking useless. So <laughs> I wanted to, to come on this job and don't want anyone to die on this job. So I went on the job and had a look and there was 16 major penetrations on every floor. It was a total disaster. I said, well, you can't have anyone come in here apart from people to come and fix the safety to start with. So that's what, we, that's what we've done. And uh, for the whole job, he expected at least two people to die. Right? We had one accident, one stupid carpenter threw all these offcuts behind him, stepped over and broke his ankle. And I had no sympathy for him. So I was quite happy. But we did have two fires started by a carpenter with a blowtorch and oxycorps. So that was a, I got a phone call on the Sunday. Building, Bingham, the building's off. Uh, what do you want me to do about it? Is the fire brigade there? Yeah. Well, oh, see you on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> building's off fire. What am I going to do? Was that the OCR so fire? I worked for Brian Conwell for oh, 10, 10, 11 years or something. Mm. On different jobs. A great guy. I always got on with him, even when he was a foreman, uh, whatever. We always had a bit of a laugh. Um, yeah, it was, it was um, very sad when he committed suicide, mm. as everyone knows. Mm. Um, and when I left, he gave my son my mm. job. Um, so, yeah, I've nothing against that one particular boss. Yes, well... Ryan and I had a few run-ins over the years. He came oh, I had arguments with him. Oh, yeah, it wasn't, a, wasn't, yeah. E- wasn't easy to have an argument with Brian, no <laughs> way. But he loved about it. As, about as easy as having an argument with you, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Brian loved it. But he, well, again, he was a creature of the industry. Mm. Now, in the terms of the industry now, and it's, you know, you're a, a bit more uh, advanced uh, since you worked in the industry than our good friend uh, Paul and myself. Uh, you mean I'm old? Yes. <laughs> Is that what he's trying to say? Yes. You're ancient. Well, it's true. You're ancient. Now, listen. A survivor. You're a survivor, that's for sure. But the, the question is, in terms of survival for the industry, do you have some views as to where the industry is now? You know, again, it's a comparison thing between all the different periods of your working life, but... Where do you think the industry is at now? Is it going to survive in the in the form it's in? What do you reckon the future might be that the f- current generation and future generations are going to have to think about? Well, I know uh, uh, shop stewards today that I drink with and some uh, that have rang me up have major problems convincing the guys that they're working unsafe. Uh, some of them tell the shop stewards to piss off. This is on major projects. Mm. Uh, my son's had problems at the, his jobs. Uh, he's actually throwing people off the job for not doing what they're told. Unless you get it through the head that a, a lot of uh, heartache and pain went through, we went through getting changes to the safety of the industry. Unless these younger generations are educated about the consequences of doing something stupid, might not kill themselves, but they might kill someone else. Um, it's not going to change much because the different generation, they've come into it when we've already fixed most of it. Mm. And they're just sort of blasé about it, you know. Um, they don't take it serious enough mm. to, because they've never, it, it, most of them have never been on a job where a mate was killed. Mm. Uh, so they don't think it's, you know, oh, someone got squashed by a fog, like that's, you know, that's nothing, you know, all that sort of crap. But, it doesn't go through the head that they could die too. Not kill themselves, but some of them might drop a hammer off the next floor and hit them on the head, you know. There's well, it's an old, it's an old bush saying describing uh, successive owners of farms from gumboots to gumboots and three generations. Yeah. And the one in the middle does the work, gets on with it. Someone built the, the first stage... Someone maintains the second stage, and the third stage is basically not thinking because it's all too bloody easy. Is that? 
Yeah. Part of the trouble or yeah. is the money, because the money is good these uh, days. Right? The work, the conditions and the money is good. We fought for it, but we got it. Is this also part of the problem? Uh, they are money hungry. They are money hungry. They don't want to lose. They don't want to go on strike or whatever in case they, you know, don't get paid for the time off, um, which should never be. We never in the past, in the, in the 60s and 70s, we never asked for payment when we went on strike. We just went on strike on principle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but today... They just, um, oh, but I'll, I won't get paid, you know. Don't worry about getting paid. You, you've earned, mm. Christ, they've earned 100 times more than we ever did, mm. you know. There's always people like that. But, it's but the proportion <laughs> seems to have yeah, well, grown. Yeah, throw them off the saying? job. <laughs> They're paying the ass. But safety first comes first yeah. in construction in well, now. It should be, yeah. Yeah, but there's still an element there that... The, Guys in Australia will get jobs overseas, managed and so on, then bring the, like in the in Quatta, where the World Cup is now, building, Qatar, the, sta- yeah. Qatar, yeah. building the stadium there, over 3,000 people have been killed on site. Now, if, if they bring those, those safety standards back to Australia, they'd have the same things out here, unless the unions, if the unions weren't here. Yeah, you've got to drum it into them about safety. Now, in terms of work... And the amount of... I used to hate work. <laughs> Surprised me. <laughs> but in terms of the amount of work, even though we've just come out of uh, the COVID-19 lockdowns and all the rest of it, and the industry basically kept working through that, which a lot of people choose to forget. Mm. But in terms of the amount of work, can you see the industry being sustained at the level it is? I've, I've thought, well, the boom's over, the boom's over. The boom has been the longest boom that has ever existed in this city because the population basically has doubled and that means there needs to be more of everything built. But is that going to continue? Do you foresee change? Do you see uh, a drop-off in construction? I mean... Well, uh, if the libs get in, uh, then Matthew Guy will be cancelling some of the biggest yeah. infrastructure jobs going around. But where do you think the industry is going? Are we reaching saturation point? I, th- I personally think big cities are a thing of the past because um, we've got Melbourne here. Uh, most of the apartments and offices are half empty. There's no one here. Whether it's to do with the COVID thing, people don't want to come back into city. They can work from home. Um, a lot of these buildings, the offices, will end up uh, apartments and cheap stuff, you know, cheap way to live, which could end up like the Bronx or something like in America. could be a big shithole in, in 10 years' time. But then again, they might, I don't think it's going to come back the way it was before, mm. Melbourne itself. So they'll have to build more cities out of the countryside. Well, maybe some uh, building workers need to be retrained as uh, IT uh, workers... <laughs> Because yeah. you can work from home as an IT worker, but you can't pour concrete via Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> but you won't need all these big buildings because they will be staying at home and working. There won't, won't be anyone coming into yeah, the city. That's the problem. Yeah, and if, uh, in the future, they won't be able to walk because they'll be stuck in this chair all day. Yeah. So it's, it's all going to change. I won't see the, the worst of it in my time because I'm too old. But. Have, have um, you seen the best of it, do you think? I think we had the best of it in the 60s, 70s, and the 80s. Yeah. yeah. But then it was, it was in the industry where the blokes looked after each other. Yeah. If there was something wrong, there were very few people that didn't care about each other. But there was always someone there that did the wrong thing. But yeah. the majority of the men looked after each other, and you looked after them. And just on that, um, I can remember shall we say, having a conversation with you down near uh, Southland on a, was it DBM? DBD. <laughs> DGB. DGB. DGB, that's right. Next to Maccas. Yeah. That's a long time ago, Paul. That's nearly 40 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> a fairly uh, hot and intemperate uh, conversation as I remember it. Yeah. But here we are all these years later because basically we're creatures of the industry and we've been uh, persistent enough to survive. We've been through it. 
You would have had to deal with Rod Kelly in those days, wouldn't you? <laughs> and a very big cheerio to Uncle Rod. <laughs> Asshole. <laughs> and uh, let me just say, I owe you one, Rod, <laughs> because when the ABCC uh, wanted to uh, take a certain employer, a surprising employer, to the federal court, uh, you convinced the company to actually resist it. And uh, the federal court knocked the ABCC back. Well, 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 well. We live in hope, don't we? Yep. We live in hope. Good on you, Rod. <laughs> but anyway, I'm starting to ramble a little bit. But in closing, part of this podcast's purpose is to provide an opportunity for people to learn from the experience of others. Because it's a cheap and quick way to learn. And you don't have to make all those same mistakes again and take forever to do it. Exactly. So, gentlemen, Paul, Martin, thank you very much for your contribution. And uh, Thanks for putting up with us. And you've got no idea how much I've put up with. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) uh, thank you very much. And we're all going to go off now and enjoy the retired members' lunch. And that will be another opportunity to talk uh, about... The good old days, and uh, maybe I'll pick up a few more stories which uh, can be revealed on future episodes of Creatures of the Industry. You have been listening to Creatures of the Industry, an ongoing series of oral history interviews about the building and construction industry in Melbourne and regional Victoria since the 1960s. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. boys for a hard and weekly pay Produces mighty profits for the greedy MBA And whether we were born here or born in Italy In Greece, in Spain, or Ireland, in England, or Fiji We all of us are workers, united we must stand Until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our land We faced deregistration, it backfired in the face We're not fooled by arbitration, we won't stay in our place We hit the bosses hard and fast to win and keep our gains And break a couple of concrete pours to back our lug of claims So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky We've got a fighting history and we never will be cowed Our builders' labour is 